On this episode of Newtown Radioactive, I talk about returning to model rocketry, one of my all-time favorite hobbies, then run down some of the great science fiction shows I'm watching. The bulk of the show is dedicated to my trials and tribulations with getting enough sleep. It's always been hard, but it got so much harder during the pandemic. Welcome back to Newtown Radioactive. I am your host, Ken Newquist, and gosh, it's nice to be able to say welcome back and have you know the time between episodes be less than a year or less than 14 months. Uh, we'll see if we can keep up this pace, but so far, so good. So the first thing I wanted to chat about is something that I got into back in 2022, and I didn't get to talk with you guys about it, which is getting back to model rocketry. Um, when I was a kid, my dad and I built a ton of model rockets. My dad was a science teacher, um, and he would do summer programs with building model rockets. He worked at YMCA day camps. He did stuff for our township. Uh, had a 4-H club, uh, which was, uh, I think it was the Sky Wizards was the name of our club in Sussex County, New Jersey. And, and we built a lot of rockets. We launched a lot of rockets. Heck, I think we even went to Space Week in Trenton and launched rockets in the state capital of New Jersey, which was was pretty darn cool. But I got out of it uh, for a long time. Um, a couple of years ago, I did return with my kids and we built a bunch of Viking rockets and launched them at one of our local parks. But after that, like the momentum didn't stay like I was enjoying it. But, you know, I had a lot of other things I needed to deal with at the time and building rockets just it was just too time consuming and I just couldn't rationalize doing it. And honestly, I just I wasn't inspired. Then, um, over the last 18 months, I've been working with uh, my parents to clean out their house. And one of the things that we discovered was the rocket closet. So this is where my dad had kept all of these various model rockets that he had acquired throughout his life. Um, he's still alive. He's just in assisted living now and not doing much as far as uh, model rocketry is concerned. But he had acquired all of these rockets. And some of these things are really amazing. They came from the 1970s and 1980s. And examples of them include the Space Shuttle, which is a skill level four Estes rocket. For those of you who are not familiar with model rockets, uh, skill levels go from level one, which is really easy, pretty much, you know, there's not a lot of skill involved, just glue three fins onto a body tube and you're good to go. Um, all the way up to skill level five, which requires usually a lot of <laughs> specialized expertise, a lot of patience, and, uh, and a willingness to break things and then figure out how to fix them after the fact. So anyway, I have the space shuttle, which is skill level four. It features the orbiter glider that separates from the external fuel tank and, um, and solid rocket boosters at Apogee, which is, which is pretty cool. Like I, I haven't actually built that many gliders in my, in my model rocketry career. So getting to build this thing is going to be fantastic. I have a Mercury Redstone, which is, I think it's, uh, made by Centauri, another sort of like skill level four rocket. Um, it's a, it's a scale model rocket of the iconic Mercury Redstone. And the challenging piece with this is that it's got a pretty complicated paint job because it's got that, that sort of stylized, iconic uh, white and black checkered pattern on it, which, uh, which you have to apply via paint. You can't do via uh, decals. There's also an SR-71 Blackbird, which is 
uh, a really hefty plane-like rocket uh, that's based on the, the classic, you know, Mach 3 spy plane from the 80s. Uh, it is a hefty double parachute rocket, which I've never had a double parachute rocket, so that's very interesting. There's a Soaring Eagle, which is a glider that launches as a rocket, and then when it gets to Apogee, the wings deploy, and it flies back to Earth, which looks really, really cool. But again, another skill level four, pretty challenging rocket. I don't know how well the plastic is going to hold up on this thing, the, you know, the, the plastic that you need to use for the wings. It's like the parachute material. And finally, uh, there's the Starship Enterprise, which is an ungainly rocket that doubles as a display model. As you might imagine, the Enterprise, your classic Star Trek Enterprise, is not what I would call a very aerodynamic rocket, right? Like from a from a science fiction space show, it is not meant to fly in the atmosphere. And I think we've seen in the movies what happens when the Enterprise attempts to fly in the atmosphere. Uh, as the model rocket version, it has what they call a probe, which is about a two and a half foot body tube and nose cone that you attach to the main rocket. And then that provides a counterbalance to the main rocket's weight, um, most of which is, you know, the most of the actual main body including the, the saucer section and the warp nacelles and the main, the secondary hull, they're all plastic. And so there's a lot of weight going on there. And I don't honestly know how well this thing will fly, uh, but it's been a, a hell of a challenge to build. I have other rockets that I've acquired from my dad. Some of these are, are rockets that I built for the first time when I was a kid, and I've been looking forward to going back and building them again. And others are, are rockets that I've had for a very long time, but never built, including the Mars Lander. This is a skill level five rocket that my parents got for me when I would think I was in like early high school, maybe even middle school. And I have to say the thing's been intimidating the heck out of me for most of my life because it's skill level five. It's got a lot of, of funky pieces to it that, you know, unlike building Legos, which, you know, really all you have to do is snap uh, the bricks together and follow the instructions. This is more complicated. This actually requires some skill. So I'm basically doing my own sort of model rocketry space program where I'm trying to build different rockets to develop my skills with both building the rockets and painting them and applying the decals so that I can finally build uh, my white elephant. Uh, white elephant's probably not the right word. I think my my Moby Dick, right? Like I, this is the thing I've been hunting all my life. So actually getting to build it would be would be amazing. Uh, so far, it's, it's been working pretty well. I think the biggest challenge that I've run into with building model rockets uh, from this time period is, is the decals. Um, the decals themselves, the way that these work is that normally you would put them into a bowl full of water. They separate from the material, like the paper that they're on, and then you very carefully apply them to the, to the finished painted rocket. The problem is, is that these things have been sitting in a garage closet exposed to extreme heat and cold for 30, 40 years. And sometimes the decals work out just fine, and sometimes they just disintegrate <laughs> into pieces. So it's a bit of uh, it's a bit of a gamble when you go to do this, but there isn't there isn't really another option that I found to be able to make sure that the decals are going to get to be applied appropriately. So we'll see how it goes. Uh, every time's a crapshoot, and so far I've been pretty lucky. And for those that haven't worked well, you know, I just improvise something else. 
The other thing I'm working on doing is finding places to launch in Pennsylvania and New Jersey, which is harder than you would think, or maybe exactly as hard as you would think, because you know, you're basically trying to get permission to fire off rockets into the sky. And a lot of people mistakenly believe that they're fireworks, which of course they are not. They are far safer. Um, there are actually instructions and uh, a National Association of Rocketry, which has guidelines uh, for launching rockets. Uh, I've uh, belonged to NAR a number of times over the years. I'm going to be joining them again shortly when I want to go and launch rockets. They provide insurance in case anything goes wrong. So, you know, it, it's a respectable hobby, but people don't understand that. They hear rockets, they think explosives. So I've identified one place in New Jersey where it's possible to launch. I identified another place in Bucks County, which is just south of us, where you can launch. I'm trying to find some places in the Lehigh Valley where we could launch. I know that there's a number of rocketeers who are in the valley who are interested in this. So I'm hoping that over the next couple of months, we might put our heads together and figure out a place to actually launch. Uh, the other thing that is interesting as far as model rocketry is concerned is my son is now interested in model rocketry. He and a friend at the high school are putting together a model rocketry club, and I'm going to volunteer to help out with that, you know, because as my time as a scoutmaster winds down, I need to find new things to keep myself engaged, right? But this would actually be cool. I think it would be a lot of fun to build rockets with kids and go out and launch them. I know it was a huge thing for me as a kid, and I'm really liking the idea of being able to go out and do this with my son. Speaking of science fiction and rocketry, uh, there is so much good science fiction streaming out there right now. Uh, I just, uh, a couple of weeks ago, and it might be a couple of months at this point, finished watching um, Strange New Worlds, which is on Paramount+. Plus. It's a, it's a new Star Trek series. It's a kind of a spinoff from Star Trek um, Discovery, which, you know, I enjoy Star Trek Discovery. It, it, it gets a little convoluted, and I think they kind of wrote themselves into a corner when they um, time jumped uh, to the future in the most recent uh, season of Discovery. But that's okay. It's kind of its own thing, and I was enjoying it. But Strange New Worlds is just truly fantastic. It it embodies all of the hope and optimism that you want in Star Trek and that I have to say has largely been missing from a lot of the science fiction that I've been watching over the last couple of years. And so if you want just like a series about a team that comes together to solve problems that has an optimistic view of the future, this is the series for you. It's just a fun romp through space that is very reminiscent of the original series, but, you know, in a way that's been modernized and is keeping with, uh, I would say, more um, current day values. Uh, but, you know, the, the old Star Trek was also pretty progressive in its own ways. So I'm loving it. I think it's definitely worth checking out. The other thing I think is worth checking out also on Paramount Plus is Star Trek The Lower Decks, which was my favorite new Trek, at least until Strange New Worlds came out. It shares that same sense of optimism, but is told from the perspective of those who aren't on the command staff. So it's all of the red shirts and the blue shirts and the yellow shirts who make the starship actually work. Um, the ship that they are part of, you know, they don't do first contact. They do second contact. They're like the custodians or the, the um, I'm trying to think of a, a good word for it. They're like, they're the support staff, right? They're the guys who show up after the Enterprise has already been there and done the spectacular, awesome thing. They're making sure that, you know, 
civilization keeps on trucking. And and it's a lot of fun. It's an animated series, so it may be something of an acquired taste for people who don't like animated. But I thought it was a hell of a lot of fun, and it's it's pretty damn funny. Uh, another show that's surprisingly good is The Orville, which is available on Hulu. Their new season came out last year. It started off as a joke Star Trek, or at least that's what I thought it was. It's a lot crasser than the series that inspired it. Uh, you know, they, they get into topics about, you know, there's a lot of reference, like sexual jokes and other things that are kind of more lowbrow humor. But the thing is, the Orville is actually a pretty good science fiction series in its own right. It's not just riffing on Star Trek. It's taking the ideas of Star Trek and then doing stuff with it. It gets into a lot of issues like values between civilizations, the idea that what one civilization might consider to be moral, another civilization would not. It, it's good stuff, and it's occasionally got, you know, your oddball joke, as you would expect from Seth MacFarlane. I mean, this is the guy who did Family Guy, right? So it's fun. It's probably not for everybody, but it's definitely worth uh, worth checking out. And finally, um, in a non-space-based sci-fi, there is The Peripheral, which is based on William Gibson's book of the same name, in which meddlers in a future timeline muck about with the past. It's got shades of cyberpunk. Uh, you know, there's a, there isn't a matrix per se, but there is a virtualized environment where you can play games online, and these far future meddlers are interacting with that particular environment. Um, it leads to all kinds of temporal shenanigans. In, uh, in a constrained way, it's more about alternative realities and less about people actually traveling in time. I enjoyed it. I thought it was it was reasonably paced for season one, and I'm looking forward to season two. On the video game front, one of the things I continued in 2022 was my Ready Player One replay, which is my attempt to play all of the video games mentioned in Ernest Klein's novel. There are a lot of video games mentioned in this novel. When I originally started the replay, I thought I would do a game a day and, you know, get through them all in a couple of months. Uh, it's been something like two years at this point, and I'm nowhere near done. I did finish level one, which uh, is an arbitrary collection of video games, 18 in all. Uh, that happened on March 2022. I then wrote a post kind of summarizing what I thought about those various games and and which ones were good and which ones weren't and what have you. Surprises along the way. And then I started level two, which I'm currently estimating to be about 25 video games. Uh, I started that in the same month, March 2022, and I've kind of been doing a bit here and a bit there. I had a big run in the fall of 2022 and I knocked out a bunch of the games. And uh, and so you might ask, well, why different levels? Really, there's no reason other than as a tracking effort. And it, and it does give me breakpoints uh, to be able to kind of reflect on what I've done and to kind of think about what's going to come next. Some of the games that I've played so far have been Space Invaders, Pitfall, Kaboom, and The Empire Strikes Back, which I don't think I ever played when it came out for Atari originally. It is, as I understand it, the first ever Star Wars tie-in game. It's... It's a fun from a shooter perspective, but depressing from a you can't possibly win perspective. So go check it out. Uh, I'll have links to uh, to the reviews in my show notes. And where possible, I link out to emulators that uh, allow you to play the games as well. Um, I'm currently playing the surprisingly complex Star Raiders, which is a prototypical Starfighter simulator that inspired X-Wing and Wing Commander, which are really two of my all-time favorite games. So it's astounding that I did never actually played Star Raiders when I, Star Raiders when I was a kid. 
the challenge I had was that it was difficult to find a functional version of Star Raiders because it shipped with this dedicated keypad that was only used for that game and that emulators had a hard time replicating as in they didn't even try to replicate it. And so the thing is you need this keypad in order to control aspects of the ship and to be able to navigate the galactic grid, which allows you to fight enemies and defend star bases and what have you. Um, for a while there, I thought I was just going to have to say, hey, I tried this. It was interesting. I'm glad I did. But unfortunately, I can't actually really play the game because I don't have this keypad. But then I got the Atari 50 collection, which includes a functional version of the Atari 5200 version of the game, which includes an interface for the keypad, which was pretty darn cool. Um, speaking of which, uh, Atari 50 is a fantastic collection. It's probably the best rec uh, retrospective collection that I've seen. It has Atari arcade games, it has the 2600 games and games from successor and complementary systems like the 5200, as well as Lynx and Jaguar, which I never even had any of those systems. It includes a completed version of the legendary Sword Quest Air World. This was the fourth Sword Quest game that was never completed because as I understand it, Atari was on the verge of bankruptcy. It was canceling series left and right. Um, one of the key things about those games as it relates to Ready Player One is that they had special awards for having completed the game. And it was this whole contest, which very much feeds into the Ready Player One Gunters slash um, egg tracking, <laughs> Easter egg tracking, finding, uh, looting, theme of that book um, it's the this game for airworld is based on the design concepts concepts by series creator todd frey and uh honestly i'm looking forward to trying it out like it's it's very retro i did play earthworld which is the first in the series and uh the puzzles are a bit challenging to get through i, I will admit that i had to look up online how to actually get through it um, but it is it is fun to go back and play kind of these these prototypical adventure games uh, prototypical RPG games, if you will. Uh, the collection, though, also includes interviews and artifacts from Atari's long run, including experiments like its pinball division. I didn't even know Atari had a pinball division. And so some of these are are short hits um, where they just they talk about, you know, different aspects of Atari at a particular time, like the origin of Pong. Uh and then other times they'll have interviews, like video interviews with people from that time period, as well as uh, modern developers reflecting on how Atari influenced them. Unfortunately, there's still no third party games like E.T. and Pitfall, which makes for an incomplete story. But still, it's a pretty damn good collection. And if you like Atari, if you're looking for some nostalgia, it's definitely worth picking up. I'm a night owl. I have always been a night owl since high school. I have preferred to stay up late and sleep late. This worked great when I was a reporter because I could get up at nine o'clock in the morning and then work until one o'clock in the morning and then like program and play games until three in the morning and then repeat the whole process. It worked okay as a dad with young kids because I was used to getting up in the middle of the night anyway. So why not? Um, I've fought insomnia, which in my case, I would define as an inability to sleep for more than uh, two hours or two to three hours a night for a few days. Um, 
on and off when I was younger. You know, I just I just couldn't sleep, um, or I would have very broken sleep. And my solution then was to pull an all nighter, then sleep for 12 to 14 hours, which would kind of reset my internal clock and get me going again. Uh, that hasn't worked so great in the modern era because with kids and parents, uh, they, they might suddenly need help. So inevitably, whenever I pulled an all nighter when I was in my 30s or 40s, you know, that would be the week where the next day one of the kids would wake up puking or with a fever or something. And suddenly, after having spent a night with an all-nighter, uh, now you have to pull another all-nighter. And uh, sleep suddenly becomes exceedingly precious. But, you know, the, the thing is, so in the more modern age, when uh, when I had kids and when I was helping out with my parents and grandparents and what have you, I avoided doing that whole, like, stay up too late. But my sleep still wasn't fantastic. I'm the kind of guy who has the second sleep pattern, which is uh, you wake up in the middle of the night. So you sleep for a couple of hours. You wake up in the middle of the night, need to read a book or do something, go back to sleep, sleep for another couple hours. Uh, the problem with that pattern, at least for me, is that I don't always get the second sleep part of the second sleep. Kind of like with uh, the whole pulling an all-nighter and then <laughs> the kid is sick the next day. Uh, sometimes when you have that second sleep pattern and, and you go back to sleep, well, still got a sick kid. Dog has an issue and needs to go out. You're sick, what have you, right? Like it just, it just messes with the overall sleep cycle. Still, I was doing okay before the pandemic, although my friends and family might disagree and, you know, they might be right. It was never truly fantastic. But the pandemic really played hell with my sleep patterns um, because, you know, I, I would have these really intense dreams, um, and it, which wasn't unique to me. Uh, it was it was definitely a thing that was happening with everybody in COVID because you were in lockdown. You had all this stress that was going on. You were in the same place day in and day out. And I think our brains got bored. We needed to do something. And so I'd have these intense dreams. Sometimes they would wake me up and it was just... My sleep patterns got wacky. There was also this thing, and I have a link to this in the show notes, called revenge bedtime procrastination. And the, this phenomenon is basically like you work all day, you take care of the kids, you take care of your family, you do the volunteer stuff, and, and then you never get to do what you wanted to do, right? And so you end up staying late, staying up late, just so you can have the opportunity to watch the movie you wanted to watch, or read the book that you wanted to read, or hell, just hang out and play Civilization VI for a couple of hours and take your brain off the hook. But the problem with that, of course, is that it's messing with your sleep patterns. It's giving you perhaps screen time before you should go to bed. Uh, it's keeping you awake when you should really be asleep, and you end up only getting four hours of sleep instead of getting uh, seven to eight, like people suggest. So, it created problems, and it continued to get worse throughout the pandemic. So on and off for the last couple of years, say for the last two years, I've been trying to improve my sleep hygiene to, to counteract this. So what are some of the things that I'm personally doing that may work or may not work? Well, we'll see. Uh, one is no caffeine after one o'clock. I usually have one or two, well, maybe three cups of caffeinated coffee in the morning. And after that, I switch to decaf. Um, I may have a Coke or Mountain Dew at lunch, often one of the smaller 7.5 ounce cans, but mostly I'm drinking water or sparkling, uh, sparkling water or uh, decaf coffee in the afternoon. Because what I have found is what my friends and I at work call the caffeine death spiral, right? Like 
you find that you're lagging in the afternoon and you really need that pick me up so you can push through, right? Like in my case, it often happens on Mondays where, you know, work is done at five. I still want to run, get in my exercise before scouts at seven. So, and, you know, I got to try and find some dinner or what have you. And like, I'm not going to get through this, right? So, uh, you know what, just this once, I'm going to have some caffeine. I'm going to have some coffee at three o'clock in the afternoon so I can power through. Well, what happens then, right? Yeah, I power through. I go to the gym. I uh, I go to scouts. We get that done. Next thing you know, it's nine o'clock. I still haven't eaten dinner. I eat dinner, but now I'm pumped. And so I get into my procrastination, <laughs> bedtime procrastination. Next thing you know, it's one o'clock in the morning and I'm still flying. So my goal to the best of my ability is to not drink caffeine in the afternoon unless I absolutely positively have to because there's just something that I need to get through and not just trying to make it through scouts. Um, I'm trying to have more consistent bedtime and wake up time. So my goal is to get to bed by 1030 um, or at least be powering down at 1030 and then turn the lights off by 11. So during that power time, power down phase, I'll be doing some light journaling through my bullet journal or kind of reflecting on the day. I'll be doing some reading on my Kindle, um, basically just trying to disengage my brain and get it to calm down. I'm also trying to get my wake up time to six o'clock or thereabouts. This is this is helped by the fact that my son gets up at six for high school. So I have to get up or my wife has to get up to get him moving in the morning because he's not particularly self-motivated when it comes to getting out of bed. This helps me have a better morning routine, which also helps with the bedtime procrastination because that's my opportunity to read a book, maybe play a video game or just ramp up for the day. So I get my stuff in before I actually have to deal with the rest of the world. Um, ultimately, I'm trying to get about seven hours of sleep a night that's my goal. I've been averaging closer to five and a half, maybe six hours of sleep a night. But, you know, it slowly but surely I have been getting better. Something else that can help with sleep if I time it right is more consistent exercise. So I was in a great routine in the run up to Philmont in 2021. And I have to say much less so afterwards. Uh, exercise is supposed to help you sleep more soundly. I can't necessarily say that it does that for me, but there are so many other variables in play, so I want to keep doing it. A good workout every day, at least 30 minutes, preferably 60, is my goal. The key for me, though, is you can't do it too late. If I go running at 6 o'clock, I guarantee you I will be up until 1 or 2 in the morning because it just gets my body pumping, it gets my brain pumping, and I can't go to sleep. So the challenge is getting that exercise in in the morning or over lunch or maybe right after work, but definitely not after 7 o'clock. Another tool in my arsenal is medication. So I take a hydrazine, which is a mild anxiety medication. It helps with getting back to sleep by assisting me in shortcutting the endless what if loops that my tired brain gets caught up in when I wake up in the middle of the night. Uh, for example, and this is, this is like the quasi sleep period, right? Like you're not actually asleep, but you're not actually awake and your brain just starts working on something like a dog with a bone. Uh, just the other night, I had this situation where uh, I thought that I had scheduled usability testing, but I needed to cancel the, the usability test sessions because I was on vacation and and I just I needed to do that. And my brain just would not let it go. It, and I, it just kept waking me up, even though when I woke up, I knew that I was on vacation. and I didn't need to do it at a level. I knew it, but then I would fall back asleep and boom, my brain kept working on that. So the hydrazine has definitely helped with that. Um, the challenge with it is it does truly knock me out. So unless I, tr I really have like good seven hours, eight hours worth of, of time to sleep, I shouldn't take it because it just makes me completely, uh, 
completely exhausted in the morning. It's hard to wake up. Um, I experimented with recording sleep. So I had added a line for sleep in my habit tracker and my bullet journal with three levels, red for a bad night's sleep, gray for adequate sleep, and black for a good night's sleep. I don't know that it really gained me any great insights into the process other than to illustrate how badly I was sleeping. <laughs> so I stopped doing that. I might revisit it now that I'm, I'm really gearing up for being consistent about sleep because I think, although it doesn't necessarily reveal a pattern, having that goal of coloring in that little box black to indicate that I got a good night's sleep could, could actually help. Um, so is all this stuff working? We'll see. Sometimes yes, sometimes no. A lot of it has comes down to consistency, and I will freely admit I haven't really been all that consistent. I'd love to hear what other people's thoughts are on defeating insomnia and getting a consistent night's sleep. You can email me your ideas and comments at nuketown at gmail.com. That'll do it for this episode of Nuketown Radioactive. This is episode 99, which means episode 100 is right around the corner. The topic for episode 100 is going to be the golden age of online role-playing games. The pandemic had a lot of downsides, but one of the upsides for me was actually being able to play more and different RPGs. I'm curious about your own experiences with that. If you have ideas about how uh, the pandemic impacted your gaming and are you in a golden age, uh, well, let me know. You can email me again at nuketown at gmail.com or catch up with me on Twitter. My uh, handle there is at NukeHavoc. You can also catch me on Facebook and Dice Camp. There are links to those in the show notes.